Today begins our study of the book of Philippians. So we're going to look at Philippians. We've got about, I think, 10 sessions, 10 or 11 sessions uh, here for Philippians. This is the beginning here of Philippians. And so we'll be looking, Lord willing, at verses 1 through 11 today of the first chapter of Philippians. I'd like to briefly introduce it here. We, of course, written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul remains a great model for us, one who saw great action, of course, in the missions of God that he gave him. We can certainly be described, Paul can be described, um, as the great field commander of the early missionary enterprise and the theological architect of biblical religion. The great field commander of the early missionary enterprise and the theological architect of biblical religion. I just made that up. That would be a description of Paul. It's, it's just that it's not a very good one. And here's why. Paul was no leader because it grossly misrepresents the truth of the fact that the Apostle Paul was a follower of Christ. He was first and foremost a follower of Christ. We, we uh, should, no doubt, give the Apostle Paul credit for somehow managing the missionary enterprise from prison, which is pretty significant, um, and also uh, being mightily used of God and all of his gifts in uh, no doubt giving us such an incredible foundation theologically for the Old and New Testaments in the New Testament here. But nonetheless, a great follower of the Lord Jesus who enjoyed signal success by merely choosing to love God truly and neighbor in each of his life events. He took full advantage of the gifts and upbringing that God gave him But emphasizing followership places the light where it should be. In the narrative of the Apostle Paul, it is appropriate that we see and understand that the hero, obviously, is God. The hero is God. Anybody know what the Apostle Paul's name actually means? What the name Paul means? It rhymes with Paul. The meaning of the name rhymes with Paul. small. Paul's name means small. Now, you might say, well, it seems to be antithetical to who the Apostle Paul was in the New Testament, but I think it supports this idea, again, that, and I I am, I do want to emphasize that we are followers of Christ, that we're not making this up as we go along, right? Nor was the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was following the Lord Jesus. He was following the Lord Jesus. You know, I often think of following and I think of, of hiking. Often when we hike, we're on a trail that's pretty narrow. You tend to be in line, actually. But there is also often, uh, if you have a large group, of great distance between the one at the beginning and the one at the end. And it may be that if you took a snapshot of that, you might notice that the person in the middle actually looks like he's leading. It's because you can't see the one that's in front of him, right? And so that often is the case, I think, regarding following the Lord Jesus. If we aren't right behind the Lord Jesus, doing what he does, seeing what he does, talking like he talks, acting like he acts, then we may look like a a leader, right? But the reality is, is that we're not a leader. As a matter of fact, we're a very bad follower, Right, 
because we're so far away from Christ. And so the Apostle Paul was one that was very close to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's why he's such a great model for us. So this first chapter in the book of Philippians, of course, regales with this idea that Philippians was his favorite church. We might wonder about that. We'll find that out as we go. Um, The Apostle Paul, humble, scrappy, blue-collar theologian, regales on the glorious, mysterious plans of God. Now, he was a political prisoner, we know, in Rome, right? Chained to a Roman guard at this time. Paul had a pretty amazing kind of plan for that. What was Paul's plan, his gospel plan while in prison? We see it kind of played out as is explained in the book of Acts. It's a pretty pretty simple plan, really. Paul's gospel plan for the Roman soldiers. What was that like? Did he have a plan? Yeah, it's pretty it's a pretty cool plan. Yeah, so this guy comes in on his shift. He gets uh, he gets chained to my wrist. That's a pretty good pretty good plan so far. It looks like God's sort of going on here, right? He gets chained to my wrist, and he just. You know, hangs out with me for a whole shift, maybe 8, 12 hours, right? Goes where I need to go, does what I need to do. And then, uh, you know, we talk about the, the beauties of Christ, of redemption in the Lord Jesus, of the forgiveness of sins, of this Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And then what happens? That guy gets unchained. He goes, someone else comes down. And what, what does Paul do? Yes. Here you are. Let's pick up where we left off. And then turns out the Roman guard, you know, they begin to talk to each other. And all of a sudden the Roman guard, very sympathetic to the Lord Jesus, to the Apostle Paul. You might wonder why Philippi is such a place in Paul's heart. Though he was beaten and thrown in prison there, an earthquake opened the prison doors, which gave him the opportunity to share the gospel with the jailer and see his entire family come to faith. The entrepreneur Lydia also shows up in the book of Philippians, remained a faithful and diligent supporter after her conversion. Paul first went to Philippi during his second missionary journey around 50 to 54 AD, accompanied by Silas and Timothy. A Roman colony, the city was unlike any Paul had been in before, and it took a few days for them to get their bearings. And that was the first Sabbath day in Europe, was in this place of Philippi. Somewhere along the banks of the swift and narrow Gangetes River, they found a place of prayer, and they encountered here Lydia and her companions. Lydia gave evidence of her conversion at once with a great change in character and extended an invitation to the missionaries that they couldn't refuse. Hospitality. That's pretty amazing. An incredible initial first fruit of the gospel is Lydia's opening her home to them. The story of the demon-possessed girl, their imprisonment, subsequent earthquake rescue, accompanied by the jailer and his family's conversion are all stories for another day. Paul's second visit to Philippi occurred on his third missionary journey, outward bound, and then again as he headed home. His next contact from the church was not actually a visit of Paul to the church. That's interesting, right? So Paul has a visit. From the church at Philippi, he doesn't go there. Somebody comes to him. It was characteristic of the church at Philippi to visit and assist Paul in his gospel labors. 
One day while Paul was in prison in Rome, he received a welcome visitor, Epaphroditus, a leader in the church at Philippi. A trip that probably would have taken a month, he brought a gift that was deeply appreciated by Paul. The church was intensely concerned about the apostles' condition, and while Epaphroditus was traveling, he became gravely ill himself and exposed to much danger. While the church anticipated that Epaphroditus would have had a longer stay, Paul not only allowed him to go, but sent him back to the loving church, likely with a letter to the Philippians, which we are looking at today. So the book of Philippians is often uh, described as an epistle of peace. It's a beautiful epistle about, um, and to a church that the Apostle Paul loved greatly. We can see this in his relationship with Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was sent to Paul not only with a gift, uh, but also with the intent that he would stay and help Paul and serve him. But Paul was so concerned about the church's concern for Epaphroditus, he got, got better and sent him back. And the Apostle Paul is a guy that... It seems no matter what he does or the situations that he's in, he always seems to have these margins in his life, where he can give to others. I mean, the guy's chained to a Roman prisoner, and he's thinking about a courtesy to the Philippian church in sending uh, Epaphroditus back. And we'll see another one of those courtesies and interesting ways that the Apostle Paul works as we look at uh, verses 1 through 11. So that's a brief introduction of the uh, book of Philippians here, this little letter. And so why don't we read chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Could somebody read that for us this morning? Philippians 1, 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord. I thank my God in all my remembrance for you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Thank you. We were talking earlier today in the book of Leviticus about this idea of a like-mindedness that comes about through our redemption, right? A growing like-mindedness with God. Uh, And in this growing like-mindedness with God, we, of course, grow in our fellowship. We delight ourselves in this unity. We we grow to a greater level of appreciation for God's love and so forth and so on. And that really is described here in the Apostle Paul's relationship to the church at Philippi. We see, uh, first of all, the Apostle Paul's signal thankfulness. And uh, that would really be a key word here for verses 3 through 8. His thankfulness. The character of the Apostle is marked by thankfulness. 
And so let's look here and see what he is thankful about. What he is thankful about. Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Certainly one of the most genuine validations of conversion is assisting others with opportunities to hear the gospel. And the church at Philippi was a constant companion in Paul's gospel labors, providing resources for things they would never see this side of heaven, but confident in their investments. Partnership. His partnership. And this is an interesting thing about God's people, is they, they give to things with some level of confidence that they will never enjoy the side of heaven, right? They, they, there are certain things they, they don't need to know, right? Uh, obviously, there should be a, a confidence in what it is that you do with your hard-earned uh, gifts, but, uh, but we also recognize that, that uh, as God's people, when we partner with the gospel, we don't get to touch everything, right? We don't get to direct everything. We don't get to... And we see this beautiful partnership that the church of Philippi has. Secondly, this persevering and being preserved. Persevering and being reserved. The work of God is gloriously evident and Paul is certain of it. The Bible says right here in verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What is Paul saying here? Verse 6. Speaking to the church at Philippi, I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I see here a representation of the covenant of grace. That which God has begun. You can be sure He's going to finish it. He's not leaving it half done. Right. Okay. That we're a work in progress. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I think Paul's confidence here is important for us. It should be encouraging to us. Uh, the Apostle Paul sees, you know, a validation of true saving faith. The Apostle Paul can go so far as to say, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. And what was the good work? Salvation, regeneration, actually. Okay. All right. Okay. Now, thirdly, here, uh, this idea of of communion or uh, this passionate communion that the Apostle Paul has here—it's so comforting, encouraging. Paul is is delighted, and we see as we read further in the book this delight and encouragement that the Apostle Paul has simply with their partnership. How many of us have been in difficult situations, maybe far away from home, I don't know, but we, we, we're encouraged uh, by the faithfulness of those people that we know are praying for us, that support us in a number of ways. Uh, anybody experienced that before? I know I certainly have. I certainly have. Being a long way from home, you know, deployed with 
the Navy or something, and, and you, you, you have a tremendous confidence uh, in, in what it is you're doing because of the way that people love you well in that situation. And the Apostle Paul certainly is uh, regaling in this idea their partnership with the gospel. They're all in union with Christ together and um, working together, even though he's in prison in Rome, and they're in the Roman colony of Philippi. Now here's an interesting question for us here as we think about this concept of the fellowship of the Apostle Paul. So we know that Jesus draws people to himself. He draws these people to one another. He enshrines these people in each other's hearts. And so we have this fellowship around Christ. It's also a fellowship of separation and a fellowship of warfare here. Verse 27 He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now I'll let the one who handles the next section deal with 27 and more in particular. But standing side by side, what is that, you think, what comes to mind? Community, okay. Paul's in a Roman colony. It also has a military concept here where right. buddies are defending each other. They've got, got your back. Right. Now, the reality is, is that we don't actually have a lot of situations where there's side-by-side standing except for a military idea. This, I, this is how people fought then, right? They were side by side. Frankly, it's not unlike the way that uh, certain aspects of our fighting would be today, side by side. You, you cover this line of sight here, you cover this line of sight here, you cover this line of sight here, or whatever. And this is the way that we fight. And so the Apostle Paul... So the point I'm trying to make here is this fellowship, right, is with Christ. This is also... What's the, what's the uh, perhaps an important aspect of... Of a fellowship of warfare. What does warfare have to do with fellowship? You're dependent on each other. Okay. Working towards the same goal. All right. You're dependent on the other guy to help you. Yeah. Right. But it's not a soccer game. It's it's not it's not a picnic where he brings some stuff and you bring some stuff and you're dependent upon him for the charcoal. Right? It's a fellowship of warfare in that it's life for life. The Apostle Paul is in prison. The Apostle Paul will die in prison. Right? He will be martyred for the faith. This is a fellowship, right? This is this is not just about kind of this, you know, yeah, we're we're buddies cuz you know, he's the he's the yin and I'm the yang. No, 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 no. No, we're talking about life and death. There's no fellowship like warfare fellowship. Right? This is an important idea. Now, also interesting is this fellowship of separation. 
Fellowship of separation. Now here's my point here. And all of us have experienced this to some degree, right? You don't know how much you love someone until what? Until you're not with them. You know, as one who's deployed in the military many, many times, I love reunions. I love reunions. I love to see my family after I've been gone for a long time. There's nothing better than that. But you know what? You've got to go away to enjoy it. <laughs> now, I'm not proposing that you go away. I'm just saying that, that the concept of a reunion is very different to a guy that's been away for a very long time, Right? And it's very, very different for a family. Do you see what I mean? And so this idea of the fellowship of separation, the Apostle Paul really enters into this. And so the reality is, is when we get in tight places and difficult situations, we really can sense the love of God's people in a unique way. And the Apostle Paul and the church at Philippi had that kind of relationship. Right? It was a fellowship of warfare. It was a fellowship centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was a fellowship that also the Apostle Paul, again, fully embraces even as he's not, he's not there. It's not an out-of-sight, out-of-mind thing with the Apostle Paul, right? It's like, I love you guys, man. I wish... Ah! You're so important, so special to me. I, you, thank you. And I, I sense it more. It's not that Paul walked away from Philippi. It's just that he appreciates him so much. And we, we, we can relate to that and we can appreciate that. And that's the sweetness of being, of being in Christ and being with God's people. And we've all experienced that. And this is a, an encouragement for us to delight ourselves more fully in it. The Apostle Paul goes on to defend his own sense here. He says in verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way about you. It's right for me to feel this way about you. For I have you in my heart. Wow. I have you in my heart. What do you think he means by that? Why does he feel the need to defend himself here? It's right for me to feel this way about you. For I hold you in my heart. It would, it would be unnatural to not feel that way for somebody that you dearly love as well as somebody who you're dependent upon. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why do we have to justify... Why do you think Paul has to justify his, his sentiment here? It's right for me to feel this way about you. Because it's God. Okay. Somebody could misinterpret it. You ever given someone a gift... And they say, uh, why are you doing this? And then you give them another gift and they say, why are you doing this? And then you give them another gift and they say, why are you doing this? See, the Apostle Paul is defending, right, this idea, his affection toward the church at Philippi, right? It's right for me to feel this way about you because of the beauty of, 
And the depth of our fellowship in the Lord Jesus Christ is such that I hold you in my heart. We are united in Christ. Even though I'm here in a Roman prison, chained to a Roman guard, I'm so delighted and thankful that Epaphroditus has come here for me. And it's just an expression of your love for me and of your partnership in the gospel with me. I have you in my heart. It's right for me. What a wonderful thing this is. The Apostle Paul is saying this. His affection toward the people at Philippi. This is something that we certainly should set our sights on enjoying ourselves. I mean, we, we, let us be, of all people, the people that can describe our relationships one with another in this way. It's right for me to feel this way. It's right for me to, 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 to speak of you in such glowing and warm and, and just... He's falling over himself describing how much he loves this church and this people enjoy fellowship, and that's the idea. It's right for me to feel this way. Empathetic unity and imprisonment in defense of the gospel... There's no reason for the Apostle Paul to hide his affection. Now, let's look at the last three verses in this section. Verses 9, 10, and 11. Well, I should point out in verse 8 here, again, he calls God to the stand here to defend his own affection. He says, for God is my witness. (laughs) I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Don't, Don't let anybody tell you. That I, don't, that I don't love you and I'm so thankful for you, right? Don't let anybody. The church tied directly to the Apostle Paul's confidence in going into hard places with the gospel. Yes, sir. What's the argument against this uh, using God as your witness against being... Uh, in violation of uh, the second commandment. I recognize that he is uh, um, earnest in this, but is it not using God's name as a form of vanity? Uh, well, it's a it's a form of accountability for the Apostle Paul. He's saying, look here. And he'll go ahead and do this again even when he talks to the uh, Ephesian elders uh, at Miletus in the book of Acts. You know, he, in other words, he calls to himself the witness of God. God has seen this. I, I'm not, he, he isn't hiding even from the all-seeing eye of God. God is my witness. God knows this, right? And that's, that's the point that the Apostle Paul is making here. That's what he's saying. That's the idea. God is my witness. He, he would say the same sort of idea uh, when, he, when he talks about, you know, Timothy and Titus. He, 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 again, he reminds Timothy and Titus that God is watching them, right? That, 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 that he's, he's a part of this. Now, verses 9, 10, and 11, we have a selfless prayer. Though Paul seems to be in the tightest of spots around the clock, Roman guards awaiting verdict from the Roman Roman tribunal, he pours out prayer not for himself, not for himself, but for this beloved church. So here's Paul, right? Where where is he again? In jail. Paul's in prison, right? He's he's a political prisoner in Rome, right? He's again chained to a Roman prisoner. Uh, does it seem like a pretty Difficult situation? I mean, what would you think if you had a friend that was in prison? I mean, what, how, what would that look like? I mean, 
a close friend in prison, I mean, that didn't belong there. You want to help him in any way possible, or you want to, and you're really concerned, and you, uh, if you've got somebody that will get him out, you might try to get him to that person. Again. Of course, I'm referring to Christ. Right. I mean, what's consuming your thoughts regarding this individual? I mean, whatever it is that transpired in the past, this guy's in a Roman prison, chained to a Roman guard. You know, it doesn't look good for him. What? I mean, your thoughts are consumed with what? What's that? His safety, his future, injustice, this sort of thing, right? And you might anticipate, right, that that person in jail, what are, what's consuming their minds? The same thing, perhaps, getting out, safety, injustice, this sort of thing. Uh, what is Paul? What does he pray for here? It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He prays for one thing that may result in three things. The Apostle Paul prays for one thing that may result in three things. If Paul knew anything, he knew about process. The one into the three. Right? This is what he says here. Right? That your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. A prayer for the noticeable directed growth in love, resulting in knowledge and discernment. Again, that their love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. A prayer for noticeable directed growth in love, resulting in knowledge and discernment. But that's not the end. That's not the three things, right? Here's the three things. Approve what is excellent. Be pure and blameless. And be filled with the fruit of righteousness through this union with Christ. Friends, I can't make this up, but this sounds just like Leviticus chapter 19 to me, frankly. This is what the Apostle Paul is praying for. Right? This is what he's praying for. Again, noticeable directed growth in love resulting in knowledge and discernment that they might approve what is excellent, be pure and blameless, be filled with the fruit of righteousness through this union with Christ. Approve what is excellent. What's the point there? Growth and grace. Okay. That they would be growing uh, as he's concerned rather than being uh, overwhelmed with grief. For him, mm-hmm. he's looking forward to them growing to be more like Christ as they deal with him there. Okay, to approve of something. What's the category? Discernment. The category is wisdom. You ever made a bad decision? Like we make decisions all the time, right? The Apostle Paul would have them approve of what is excellent. We, we decide things that we, we may not even really consider, right? We may not really stop and think about the theological or biblical application of what it is that we're doing. 
So the Apostle Paul is praying for them as a result. What, what is it that he's prayed for here? Again, noticeable directed growth resulting in knowledge and discernment. The category here, again, is discernment, approving what is excellent. Secondly, to be pure and blameless. The Apostle Paul prays for their holiness. He prays for their holiness. And thirdly, to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. All right, that's verses 1 through 11. Any uh, comments, thoughts on that?